This morning, our text is gonna be found in Exodus chapter 34. We're gonna be looking at verses one through 10. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We're gonna have the verses on the screen. We're getting close to uh, the end of the book of Exodus. Um, God's grace is still very present and clear, and Israel's sin is still very present, still very clear. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 34, verses one through 10. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as not been created in all the earth, or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Rock bottom and knocking on death's door was where Adam Brown was found. But if you knew Adam prior to this moment, you would see that the trajectory of his life was heading somewhere very different. Adam was a straight-A student. He was a high school uh, athlete, star athlete. He was raised in a Christian home. He was beloved by all. He would care for those with exceptionalities, those who couldn't care for themselves. He was a natural protector. He protected one child whose father was Captain Roger Bushman. He was the highest ranking naval captain who was in charge of recruiting for the entire Southeast of the United States. Adam's life was heading in a beautiful direction, but he was found on the front porch of a drug house, strung out with a crack addiction, by his former youth pastor. After high school, he met a woman who introduced him to drugs. He dropped out of college, developed a terrible addiction, and this once promising life was laying on the floor of a crack house. By God's grace alone, a person who found him there was his former youth pastor, who saw Adam lying there, and by God's grace convinced Adam 
to attend rehab. And it's in rehab where Adam was confronted with the love and mercy and long-suffering of God in Christ. And we're gonna look at that a little bit later. But after rehab, Adam sadly had several more relapse experience. He was around a lot of bad company and it corrupted his good nature that God was building in him. He needed a change of scenery. His friend suggested he join the Navy. So Adam, fresh off of a crack relapse, goes into the Navy recruiter's office and he said, I'd like to join the Navy. Navy recruiter looks at Adam and he starts asking him a litany of questions. There's all these forms. And he says, well, Adam, do you have any charges? Do you have a criminal record? And Adam said, well, yes, I'm facing 11 felonies right now. Not off to a hot start, as they would say. He said, okay, well, all right, uh, can you pass a drug test? Adam says, probably not. Uh, I just relapsed two days ago. Kind of flustered, the recruiter looks at him, he says, he says, you're just not Navy material. You can't join the Navy with this kind of lifestyle. With this background, you're just not gonna be able to do this. Feeling like Adam was at rock bottom again, he looked around the room and on the wall was a photo of Captain Roger Bushman. He hadn't talked to Bushman in years, but he looked at the recruiter and had the audacity and the boldness to say, call Cap Captain Bushman. He will vouch for me. Kind of stunned by the audacity, the recruiter giggles a little bit and says, I'll humor you, I'll call Captain Bushman, and I'll move on with my day. He calls Bushman on the phone, he says, uh, Captain, I've got Adam Brown here, he wants to join the Navy, he's fresh off of a crack relapse, he can't pass a drug test, he's facing 11 felonies, can I tell him to get out of here? Bushman told him this on the phone. He said, give him a chance. Treat him like you would treat my son. And it was this second chance given to Adam by God's grace that would change the course of his life and the lives of many others, maybe even some of our lives in this room today. And a second chance is what God is giving Israel in our text this morning. But it helps us to ask this question. It sets up for us the question of how in the world can this holy God give sinners a second chance? How can God, holy and perfect, without sin, unable to be near sin, how can this holy God give sinners second chances? Well, the text gives us two reasons why. Because of God's mercy, and because of God's justice. We'll see that God is merciful and he's just, and it's because of these two things that God can give sinners a second chance. Let's look at God's mercy throughout verses one through seven. So we need a little bit of background information. What preceded this interaction with God and Moses here in verses one through seven? Well, back in chapter 32, God was speaking with Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, and at the bottom of the mountain, Israel grew impatient 
and took the jewelry that God had blessed them with, the plunder from the Egyptians. When he rescued them out of slavery, they took all these material gifts and melted them down into this golden calf, and they had for themselves the most blasphemous worship service that you could ever imagine. The roar was coming from the bottom of the mountain, and God tells Moses, you need to go get your people. Moses comes down the mountain, sees what's taking place, and in righteous indignation, slams the tablets down, representing the absolute destruction that Israel has caused to the covenant relationship with God and Israel. Where our text picks up this morning, Moses has interceded. Moses is standing in the gap for the sins of Israel and again is standing in God's mercy. And God, in verse one, tells Moses to bring two new tablets of stone that God would rewrite his law on them. Now, what's God teaching here? What's God teaching here? God is letting Israel know that he still wants to be in a relationship with these sinful people. By what merit, though? Based on what? Why would God ever want to be in a relationship with these people? It's obviously not based on Israel's performance, but God wants to be in a relationship with Israel based solely on his covenant love and character. But it doesn't end there. God could just say, I wanna be in a relationship with you and treat uh, Israel kind of like we treat some of our jobs on Friday, out of sight, out of mind. I did my job, I'm putting you out of my mind. God had all the right in the world to do that. But he doesn't. Not only does he rewrite the law for Israel, but in verse five, we see God descend again to the top of the mountain to be near Moses. And Moses, we know, is, his, is Israel's intercessor. Another phrase you might see is mediator. It means a one who intervenes uh, and leads on the behalf of other people. So not only does God want to be in relationship with Israel by having the law rewritten, but God takes it a step further. His condescension, his coming down to Moses again to the top of the mountain reminds Moses and Israel the type of relationship that he wants to have. God wants to have a personal, loving, intimate, connected, physical relationship with these absolutely rebellious, blasphemous people. This is absolutely baffling. This kind of grace is baffling. It reminds me of a quote. It says, it's a rare person who when his cup frequently runs over, can thank God instead of complaining about the limited size of his mug. Let me read that again. It's a rare person when his cup frequently runs over that can thank God instead of complaining about the limited size of his mug. Y'all, Israel is that person complaining about the size of their mug. Israel has been blessed by God in so many ways. God has chosen them of all people on earth. God chose Israel. God not only chose them, but he frees them from slavery. 
He enters into a covenant relationship with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. They have direct access, Israel has with God through Moses, the God of all creation. They have access to him through Moses, their intercessor. And despite all of that, the material blessings, the provision, the care, the protection from their enemies, despite all that, Israel still had the audacity based on their sin, to complain and to grumble and to gripe because God and Moses were just taking too long. They were taking too long. They needed a God who was a little bit more present, who moves a little bit more on my timeline. That's the God I want to have. So they created one and it was an absolute disaster. What would your response be if you were God? I know if I was God, I would have wiped them off the face of the earth and none of us would be here today because of it, right? The anticipated response is wrath. It's easy to sit back here and be like, they deserve justice. But what does God do? God comes down. He moves towards them in the most blasphemous idol worship. The Bible later illustrates Israel sinned towards God like a cheating spouse, and he gives them his law. His law reflects his character, his beauty, his perfection. And to cap that off, God then goes and gives what some have called the greatest and sweetest sermon in the Old Testament. Look at verses six and seven. We're gonna look at verses six in the first part of seven. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now notice how Moses, I'm sorry, notice how God chose to reveal himself to Moses. He doesn't do it by an appearance this time, but he does it by his word. God reveals himself to Moses by his word. So why is that important? Why is that important? God was making Moses live by faith and not by sight. God was making Moses live by his word not by sight, and what better way to teach Moses faith than by revealing to Moses God's divine attributes, his divine attributes. God repeatedly moves towards Moses, and then he says in the text, he says, Lord, Lord. In your English translations, it'll be capital L-O-R-D. God was coming to Moses, reminding him two times, and when God repeats something, It's very important. God's reminding his people of his covenant family name. I am who I am. God is reminding his people that he exists in and of himself, that he is the great I am, that he is the creator and sustainer. This is the God who's moving towards these sinful people. And in Hebrew culture, a person's name represented their entire being. A person's name 
revealed the person's nature and who that person was. God's telling Moses, before he even gets into his divine attributes, he tells them that he is the God of creation. He is the God of redemption. He's reminding Moses and Israel that he is the God who made the heavens and the earth and all of them. He not only makes them, but he saves them and sustains his people. God then moves and he explains himself further. More and more and more grace. Israel didn't deserve this explanation. But this became Israel's confession of faith. This became the people's working definition of who God is. So it would be good for us to then dive into these attributes a little bit. Let's dig into these. Notice God starts off after saying, Lord, Lord, he says that he is merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. God doesn't mince words. His words create things, right? His words are powerful. So he says, he's merciful and gracious. What does that mean? It means that God gives what we do not deserve. God gives sinners mercy. God gives us his grace. God moves towards sinners when they're at their worst. He says he's slow to anger, meaning he's patient. Some of uh, older translations use this phrase. I really love it. It's called long-suffering, long-suffering. Peter describes this long-suffering in 2 Peter 3 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience is waiting on us to turn to him and to find life and forgiveness. He goes on to say that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, God's reminding Moses and Israel again and again that this is the commitment that he's made to Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bore you on wings of eagles. I will care for you. I will protect you. And the good news about this is that God always follows through on his love. And what he says, God always follows through. And finally, he says he's forgiving, forgiving. And then he has this, these three phrases. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. These three phrases capture all of the unrighteousness that we can muster. Thought, word, deed, things we do, things that we don't do. Every bit of it, God forgives every bit of our unrighteousness. God forgives every bit of it. But it makes us ask, why is this significant? Why is this sermon so significant? God said these words to Moses and Israel. We have them today because Israel needed to remember that this was their God. This is who God is. This is the God who has created and saved them despite their sins. This is the God who has mercy for sinners. And Israel needed to remember this. They needed this confession of faith. They needed to remember this. 
They needed to remember that this is their God who is tender and patient and long-suffering and merciful towards them when they are at their absolute worst. It's this type of love that Adam Brown experienced when he was in rehab that drove him to Jesus. Adam's father owned a small electrical company, just enough to make ends meet, and he had a work van. And inside of this van, it was lined with all of his tools. And for those of you who grew up with old timers who had their tools and you were a kid and you misplaced that tool, what usually happened? You got reprimanded immediately. My grandfather had an outline of his tools on his shed. And if I didn't put the hammer back in the right place, he would come to me and gently remind me where those tools are supposed to go. His dad's tools were his lifeblood. They were the way that he could make a living and support his family. Tools are also very expensive. Adam had ran out of money. He sold everything he had. He was fiending to feed his addiction. So he takes his dad's work van. He backs it up to the drug house. He opens the back doors and sells everything in the van for pennies on the dollar and even sells the van itself to fund his crack addiction for a few more weeks. This was rock bottom. This was rock bottom. It was after this um, experience where he had enough drugs, where he uh, drugged himself stupid, where he was laying on the floor of this crack house when his pastor, youth pastor happened to walk by and see him. This was his rock bottom where he was in rehab, reflecting on this scenario and the shame and guilt and pain that he was eaten with hurt him so bad that he could not dare, even after getting sober, go and face his father. He couldn't dare look his father in the eyes after doing something so terrible. His father, knowing that, goes to rehab anyway. Goes and meets him there when Adam couldn't even face his father, when his shame was bearing down on him so much, Adam's father moves towards him, puts his arms around Adam, hugs him, says, I love you, I forgive you, and God's got a plan for your life. He shares with him the love of Jesus. He shares with him Christ's work on his behalf and his life, death, and resurrection, and it's there where God moved into Adam's life by his spirit, gave him new heart and new affections. This was where Adam could tangibly experience the love of God through his father. And the good news is that this God that we're seeing in our text, moving through Adam's father, still works with us the exact same way today. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God came for us in Christ. When we were at our rock bottom, God saved us. And it begs the question, it begs the question, what do you do with the second chances that God gives you? What do you do in those times where you're hangry, you've got deadlines, you're running late, 
and your wife or your spouse or your husband or your kids or your roommate or a coworker says that thing that triggers bad you to come out and you fly off the handle. You say things that you wouldn't normally say when the scenario is just right and your worst comes out and you feel the pain, you feel your sin, you feel the shame, you feel the weight of that on you. What do you do with it? What do you do in those times where someone near you shares private information with you? And at some point it becomes advantageous for you to share that private information with someone else. Or maybe a person you kind of despise and you're withholding forgiveness from. You get the chance to stab them in the back with the slander dagger. And then before long, the information passes back around. They find out what you've done. You're confronted with the pain that you've caused. You feel the brokenness. You see the wake of destruction in your relationships. What do you do then? What do you do when you're like Israel and God isn't moving fast enough for you? What do you do when you're not getting your way? What do you do when God is not moving fast enough and working on your timeline, when God's not answering your prayers the way you think they should be answered? And you start to grumble and gripe, become a malcontent. You start to doubt the goodness of God. You start to doubt if God has your best interest in mind. You start playing the comparison game to your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones. God, why aren't you moving like that in my life? How dare you? What do you do when you're in these places? In those moments where the worst is coming out in you, do you repent? Repentance is a word that means you turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And not only do you turn to Christ, but you trust by his spirit that he will work in you new obedience. And repentance is not a bad thing. Repentance is a gift. It is a grace from God. This is God telling you, you get another chance. What do you do in those moments? Are you taking advantage of God's grace by battling back against your sin nature? Are you battling your sin nature? It doesn't matter if you're in Christ for five minutes or 50 years. Until you leave this earth and meet Jesus, you have a sin nature that is at war with you. In this battle, are you constantly battling back through God's grace, through his Holy Spirit. When you feel the worst coming out in you, when you have repented and you feel yourself back in that same uh, scenario and you feel bad you coming out, right? What are you doing in that moment? I need this advice and this direction as much as you do. It's in those moments where we must cling to what God has done for us in Jesus. We must learn that God saved us when we were at our rock bottom and cling to that grace. We cling to that grace that Christ was crucified on our behalf. 
and we trust in God's spirit to help us battle back against our sin. This is a momentary battle. This is not just a Sunday battle. It's not just a community group battle. This is not a youth group battle. This is momentary, day by day, warfare. And we have hope by God's spirit. We have hope. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Paul's saying that at the moment we have faith, our old self, our sin has been crucified with Christ on the cross so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sin does not have control over you anymore if you're in Christ. Sin is not your master, Christ is, and he has given you the tools through his word, through prayer, through his spirit, through community to battle back against your sin nature. This becomes a lifestyle of faith and repentance. It's hard. You can't do it alone, and you need community. You need each other. So how can God give sinners a second chance? Because he's merciful, but also because he's just. And we see God's justice in 7b, or the seven, second part of verse seven. And let me prepare you, church, that this is not an easy verse. This is not comforting. This is not fun to preach about. A seminary professor said, if you find a pastor who enjoys preaching on hell, be a little bit concerned. Listen to what God says in verse 7b. He says, after giving all these beautiful attributes, all about this forgiveness, he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is heavy, rightfully so. But we can't take the parts of the Bible, we can't take the parts about God, we can't take the parts about Jesus that we like and keep them stored up and then do away with the parts that we don't like. For all people across the world, there's gonna be parts of the Bible that build us up and others that really cut us deep. Americans typically enjoy hearing about God's grace. We love God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and we shudder a little bit when we hear about God's wrath and his justice. But there's other parts of the world and other Christians who really enjoy hearing about God's justice and wrath against sin, and they cringe a little bit when they hear about God's grace. You see, the point is God's word is going to cut to the core of us. God is not tame. God is not safe. We can't neuter God and take the best parts that we like about him and discard the rest. We have to take all of God at his word. And this text reminds us that God is a God of holy and just love. And what this means is that his holiness and his perfect just love dictates that he punish sin. 
And sadly, without God's intervention in our lives, by his spirit, by his grace, what awaits for sinners is an eternity paying for our sins and what the Bible calls hell. It's a real place where the full wrath of God, the Bible calls the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath is poured out unmitigated by any of God's common grace. It's that cup of wrath that when Jesus was in the garden was causing him to sweat blood. Preferable were the nails. He knew what that cup of wrath was and it caused him to pray, if there's any other way, God, but your will be done. But it gets worse. It gets even worse. Notice the text says that not only will we pay for our sins, but our children inherit our sins. The text says up to the third and fourth generation. I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be. I'm from rural North Carolina. I'm thankful I can string together a couple of coherent sentences for you. But I do know that we inherit our DNA from our parents, from our biological parents. And sin exists at a molecular level. Our bodies, our minds, our will, our emotion, our affections are all touched and are all tainted by sin. And as children, we get the good, the bad, and the ugly from our parents. We get all of it. And sadly, we pass on sin habits, we pass on sin traits, we pass on sin to our children at a biological level. When I was at my previous church in Gainesville, one Sunday we were preaching on a text similar to this, and after I finished my sermon, I noticed a man standing at my door, and typically when pastors go to their offices and people are standing at your door, they're there to either tell you what you missed in the sermon or uh, they need some sort of prayer support. So it was a 50-50 shot. Um, and I came to the door and this, this young guy uh, had a very somber look on his face. I was like, all right, he's not gonna nail me on my sermon. So uh, he begins to tell me, he said, Friday, he was picking up his little girl from preschool. She was as cute as she could be. She was probably two or three years old. And two or three-year-olds, uh, by and large, aren't speaking full sentences. Some are. They're super blessed kids. However, um, this little girl was not speaking in full sentences. And as he was leaving preschool, he was cut off by a vehicle, and he hit his horn. And as soon as he hit his horn... Without missing a beat, this little two-and-a-half, three-year-old girl let out a string of expletives with perfect diction, with perfect volume, with perfect clarity, with absolute power and authority. More shocking than about getting sideswiped off the road was his father as he was looking at the back. Where did this little girl learn this? As he self-reflected, she was repeating exactly what he said every time he honked the horn with his road rage. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. We all have stories of sin that we inherited from our families. 
Whether we know it or not, we, we have learned from our families a lot of good and bad habits. Regardless of how good of a parent you are or how bad of a parent you are, our children will likely need counseling at some point, and that's a wonderful thing. I'm a huge fan of counseling. But the good news is that you aren't gonna save your children or cause your children to go to hell. They've inherited that DNA all the way from you going back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And you have the ability and we have the ability to shepherd their hearts and to point them to Jesus and to pray that God would by his spirit intervene into their lives and break what you might heard uh, referred to as generational curses and watch God work in the lives of these children so that we aren't replicating our sinful natures to future generations, teaching them sinful beliefs, teaching them sinful habits. We pray that God would break through to our children and to the children of our city because we are gonna be held accountable for what we teach our children. Jesus says, woe to those who cause these little ones to stumble. So where's the hope? If you're like me, we feel the weight of this. We, we long for hope. Is there, is there relief here? C.S. Lewis says eloquently, he says this, mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. That's the important paradox. As there are plants which will flourish, only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. You see, to understand God's mercy, we need to understand what God's mercy is contrasted against. God's mercy is contrasted against his wrath against sin. It's against his holy justice. So knowing that we're sinners, and what our sin deserves, we are driven to one of two responses. This is not important. He's not describing me. I'm better than I think I am. Or all oh, this is silly fairy tales and the bald guy up there is brainwashed. That's a route to take. The other route is to respond as Moses responds. Look at Moses' response in verses eight and nine. After hearing this, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses is acutely aware of his sin and the sin of his people. And in his response, he bows down to God. He worships God. He admits his sin and he asks God for pardon. He asks God for forgiveness. He asks for God to take him as his inheritance. What's God's response? In verse 10, God says, I am making my covenant. I am making my covenant. God could have simply said, I forgive you, 
please go away from me. But God goes a step further. He says, I'm making my covenant, which includes I will forgive you. But God is declaring to Moses his covenant love that God will forgive them and make them a people. God will make them his people. God not only says that he will forgive them and they will be his people, he will be their God, but God then goes on later in verse 10 and says, I will do marvels through you that the world has never seen. God loves and forgives sinners. God is always bracketing our sin by his amazing forgiveness and mercy. So we've asked, how can God give sinners a second chance? Well, a few thousand years later, God's marvelous word came to life. God's mercy and justice would collide again at Calvary's cross where Jesus, who Colossians says, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. He is God in the flesh. And it's God in the flesh who would go to the cross and satisfy God's justice and give us his mercy where he would then hang and die. It's at the cross where this massive and beautiful cosmic exchange happened. On the cross, Jesus died there. And he absorbed all of God's wrath, kind of like a sponge. Imagine a sponge. Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath. The justice for sins, the cup of God's wrath for all of eternity was poured out in Jesus. And for those who have faith in Jesus, what's left for you is not wrath, but Jesus wrings out that sponge on you in mercy and in love and forgiveness and grace. Theologians call this double imputation. Double imputation. Imputation meaning something being credited to you. This happened between you and Jesus at the point you put your faith in him. What this means is that on the cross, Christ is imputed with your sins. He is counted a sinner on your behalf. And by faith, he imputes to you his righteousness. You have been credited with Christ's sinless perfection. Jesus pays for your sins and you receive perfection, sinless perfection. And y'all, this is the only way that God can give second chances. This is the only way God can give second, third, fourth, fifth, a thousand chances. This is the only way that sinners can not only be forgiven, but live a lifestyle of repentance and faith. It's this great cosmic exchange on Calvary's cross. And Jesus was victorious because he rose. He rose from the dead. He stands victorious his resurrection means that the victory over sin is completed, that the payment has been satisfied, that this was a sufficient payment for your sins, and then he sends his spirit to allow you to fight your sins. This is the best news you'll ever hear. 
This is the best news that should stir in you a desire to thank God and to bow and to worship him. And this is why we meet every Sunday. But I pray that this good news affects you more than just under this roof. And it's the same good news of God's mercy. It's the same good news of God's justice that saved Adam Brown and pushed him not only to thank God for forgiveness, but to live out his faith. He was known by his teammates as one who would regularly tell everyone about the love of Jesus. This man's life went from the front porch of a crack house to joining the Navy and becoming one of the top one percenters of all armed forces. He ended up becoming a member of the Navy SEALs in SEAL Team 6. He's the professional athlete of soldiers. And on Adam's final mission before retiring, they were sent on a very top secret mission to capture one of bin Laden's top generals. Bin Laden's top generals were not um, guarded lightly. They were very guarded. They came under, Adam's team came under the cover of night. Their cover was blown. They had enemy snipers set up in particular positions. Adam's team was pinned down by enemy gunfire on every direction. They were sitting ducks. They were like shooting fish in a barrel. Something had to happen for these men to escape with their lives. They had to find out where the sniper fire was coming from, and they were all out of resources. The last thing that they heard on their radios was Adam coming through and he said, I've got this, I've got this. He jumps from behind cover to um, draw the sniper fire out. So as he's running, there's shots kicking up at his heels. Adam sees the shots, he climbs up this tower where he was and he was mortally wounded by enemy fire. Adam would succumb to his wounds, but his team was able to identify the sniper, take the stronghold and caption Bin Laden's top general. Later, uh, they would provide the intelligence to go and capture Bin Laden himself. It causes us to ask, what in the world causes somebody to sacrifice their life for their friends? What causes that? Adam would say he was following in the footsteps of his Savior, who came and said, I've got this, and willingly came and died for his people. But there's a massive distinction that we cannot miss here between Adam and Jesus. Adam was a sinner that died for his friends. Jesus was sinless and died for his enemies. Jesus knew no sin, deserved not to die, but then willingly went to the cross out of his love for his enemies. Jesus was dying for the people that were pushing the nails in his hands and cheering him on. Jesus died for those people. Jesus died to turn his enemies into his family. And y'all, apart from Christ, we would be those people cheering those hammer strikes through those nails. Jesus is the embodiment of this beautiful sermon 
God has given Moses in Israel. He is that patient, long-suffering, merciful, kind, and gentle God who took the weight of sins, the eternal punishment for sins, on his shoulders and offers pardon and forgiveness to all who would like Moses bow and worship, repent and turn to Jesus in faith. If that's you this morning, I pray that you would investigate what I'm saying. If this is you this morning, I pray that you would turn to Jesus. There's no magic formula for this, but just turn to Jesus in faith. He's quick to forgive. If you're here this morning and you do trust in Jesus, but your relationship with him is struggling, you feel like you maybe have just sinned too much for God to love somebody like you. You might feel like you've just made too much of a mess of your life. You maybe feel like you're wearing out your welcome with God's grace in Jesus. Hear Jesus who says this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Turn to him and be saved, church. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to know that you came to save the sick and the needy. You are the great physician that came to save sinners, eaten by the corruption and disease of sin, and you willingly died to bring us life. Father, how good that news is. May it radically change us. May we never be the same. May we never get tired of hearing that good news. May it wake us up from the soul slumber that we might have of just hearing this every Sunday. May we not get used to hearing about your love. Radically, radically change us by your spirit. Awaken our hearts. May it not just dwell inside of us. May it pour out of us. May we love our neighbors better. May we work harder. May we care for other people. May we uh, make us better employees and leaders and husbands and wives. Make us better children. God, help us to trust and love you more. We need you to do this in us by your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.